Well, again, my name is Ike Nicholson, and uh, I'll have to admit, when I first came here, uh, I started as your senior pastor in February. I had to kind of get used to the idea of two services, and uh, really got got to the point where I enjoyed, you know, the nine o'clock service where I got to do the practice run-through for the sermon. <laughs> and then again back at 10.30 for the second service. And that way, any mistakes that I made at the first service, I could correct at the second service. And I just stepped to the pulpit just now and realized I don't get to fix the mistake that I have just made. The mistake is, is I forgot to bring the screen that we used to change slides. And so uh, throughout the message, I'm going to have to look at the, the crew back there to change the slide. So let's give the crew a round of applause. And this is the run-through, so I can't fix it. So uh, I'm going to be, uh, it's appropriate. This is the final Sunday of Advent. We're just a few days away from Christmas. You're going to hear this story again on Christmas Eve, read by a very special person who is known probably around the world. We're we're going to have him here uh, to read the scriptures uh, and the text this year from Luke chapter 2. So I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Uh, I'm going to be reading also from the King James Version of the Bible. Because if you don't read the Christmas story from the King James Version of the Bible, you might as well just not read the Christmas story. And so uh, I hope that you'll, uh, you'll enjoy and remember and discover anew the beauty of this story from Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, The shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things 
which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he give us wisdom. May he give us the knowledge that we need to understand and apply that which his spirit will teach us this day. Amen. Now, if you've been here for more than just a few weeks, you know that I have a great deal of appreciation for art, especially art that dates back hundreds of years, and particularly art that references biblical themes. Now, I don't know if you figured it out by now, but I'm a preacher. That's what I do. A big part of my job, some might say the most important part, is teaching, is explaining and helping folks understand Scripture. And so part of that job, part of that preparation for me is, is to read as much as I can about what other folks say about the Bible. Theologians, Bible scholars, historians, these are the folks that I read a lot. But there's one group of people that is often overlooked in this endeavor. And it is a group of people that have actually historically been perhaps the biggest influence and how we have come to understand certain stories in the Bible. And that group of people are artists. You see, during the Middle Ages, before screens were a big thing, folks sought to display the gospel story on other things, paintings, icons, stained glass. And all of these things were things that were used to uh, explain the story that the preacher was seeking to teach on. As a matter of fact, some of the ancient preachers uh, would use uh, crosses with stories carved on the cross or things called triptychs, which were these portable, foldable paintings that could be carried and set up for the sermon. Pictures are powerful. What's the old saying? A picture is worth a thousand words. Aren't you hopeful? As a matter of fact, 500 years ago on this very day, on the last Sunday before uh, Christmas, a guy named Martin Luther, who was the founder of the Protestant Reformation, preached a sermon that lasted 75 minutes. And that was shorter than what he normally preached. I went back and looked at that sermon. It was 7,533 words long. Now, so what he could have done is, is he have, if he had just taken seven pictures and showed seven pictures, his sermon had been over with in about 10 minutes. So what I'm going to do to, to, with you today is I've got about four or five pictures that I'm going to share with you. So just consider that about four or 5,000 words. And then I'm going to just add a few more words. And uh, don't time me, but the way I figure it, you should be getting out of here. Well, let me rephrase that. You should be done with me in about 15 to 17 minutes. So my first picture that was up there just a moment ago is the first icon of the season. When folks think about the season of Christmas, these are the pictures that are generally universally accepted. Everybody knows who these people are. These pictures are all of the same person, depending on when they were used throughout uh, recorded history since 
the advent of Christianity. But the one on uh, the very bottom, uh, over to the far right, is the one that is probably universally accepted. I thought about trying to knock out the Coca-Cola part because they don't pay us for free advertising. So, uh, but uh, we, we'll just let it slide. But you probably, as Christians, also have another icon that you think about. It's an icon that is often called a Koresh or a Nativity, and it's a picture uh, or, or, or statues or, or, or a painting of, of Mary, of Joseph, of baby Jesus, of the shepherds, of uh, some farm animals, farm animals, maybe an ox, a cow, or a donkey, uh, like Miss Debbie and Pastor Joe shared with you today. But what is the oldest, oldest copy or picture of the nativity that we have? Next slide. This one right here. This is the oldest painting of the birth of Jesus that we have ever discovered. It was found in some catacombs in Rome. Now that's a real fancy way of saying some buried cemeteries where ancient Christians were buried a lot of scholars say that this painting dates back to the second or third century. The common uh, explanation by most historians is that this dates to about the year 150 A.D. 150 A.D. So a little over 180 years after Christ. It probably isn't the best picture you've seen of the birth of the Nativity. As a matter of fact, some folks, and you probably can see it as well, you see the woman holding a child, and pretty much everybody agrees that the child is Jesus and that the woman holding him is his mother, Mary. But what's interesting is, is what you don't see. You don't see Joseph, although some historians argue that the figure uh, that's in the background is Joseph, but no one agrees with that. Some say an angel. We don't really know. But even if we consider that to be Joseph... We don't see any farm animals. We don't see any shepherds. We don't see any magi or wise men. And this is a clear indication to us that in the earliest time of the church, uh, Mary was pretty important. As a matter of fact, in a few hundred years after that, and you have to understand that over 2,000 years, a few hundred years isn't that long, they give Mary a special name. Her name is the Theotokos, the Theotokos which is the Greek word for the God-bearer, or the one who gives us God. There's another picture. The next slide. This is one of the earliest representations of the nativity that we think was universally accepted, and it is a carving on the side of a sarcophagus in Italy dating to about the year 354. This becomes, in the years that follow, the most common depiction of the birth of Jesus. The baby, and on either side of the baby, an ox and a donkey. Nothing else. No Mary, no Joseph, no sheep, no shepherds, nothing else. A lot of scholars believe that this comes from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3. If you've been here before, you remember that I've said that Isaiah for the first hundred or so years of the church, was considered the gospel of the Old Testament. Isaiah 1.3 says that the ox knows his owner and the donkey his master's crib. By the way, that's not what the text really says. It doesn't say donkey, but I didn't want any of our kids to enjoy this service too much. 
In Jewish law, the ox was considered a clean animal, and a donkey was considered an unclean animal. And so most historians believe that this is a depiction of how Jesus brings together the ancient Hebrews, those who were classified as clean, and the Gentiles. Most of us in this room are probably Gentiles. Not all of us, but most of us. We were considered unclean. That is, is the law with the Hebrews and the message of grace with the coming of the Gentiles into the family of God. Now, however you want to interpret it, whatever sounds good to you is fine with me, I suppose, because the point here is that unlike how we display the nativity, a picture, a scene, a, a crash, which seeks simply to describe the text we are reading, in the ancient church, the descriptions wasn't so much about just what the Bible said, but how it was interpreted. That is, is what it meant. What does it mean to our life? The depictions of Jesus' birth in the earliest years of the church was intended to teach us something about the uniqueness and specialness of the event. Now, you know what else I find is interesting? That the two oldest depictions of the birth of Jesus are found in a cemetery and on a casket. No crosses, no angels, no sunrises that we put on our tombstones today, but a picture of the birth of Jesus. For the vast majority of Christians throughout history, we have understood this event that we're about to celebrate more than just some sort of divine lullaby when we're in the hospital. You know, when a baby's born in the hospital, the lullaby comes on across the speaker. It's more than just that. For us, Christmas is when God took upon himself flesh and dwelt among us. It is the moment that hope was ushered into the world. It is the celebration, the proclamation, that when we could not get to God, God came to us. What an amazing, you might even say an insane announcement, that the God of the universe took upon himself human flesh so that he could redeem us, not condemn us. To show us his love, not demand signs or sacrifices from us to prove our love to him. Now, years would roll by, and in the 1500s, the Protestant Reformation would occur. And in the 1600s, a painter by the name of Rembrandt becomes what many consider to be the greatest Protestant painter of all time. Next slide. And though this wasn't the first time we have seen a depiction of the nativity with more than just Jesus, it is perhaps one of the greatest examples that seek to capture the importance of this event. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, I can't see that very well, preacher. It's too dark. That was Rembrandt's intention. He didn't want you to see those folks. He wanted you to see the clear and pure person who is the focus of the event. Now, look at the very forefront, and if you think about it for just a second, you'll notice that the light in this painting isn't coming from the moon, it's not coming from any stars, 
It's not coming from the glory of the heavenly angels singing. It's not coming from Mary's face or Joseph's face. It is coming from Christ. That is, Christ is the light of the world. You may not be able to see it, but off to the left is a person holding a lantern. And even the light from that lantern is dimmed compared to the light of Jesus Christ. And who can you see most clearly? You can see those who are closest to Jesus. Now, after I kind of went through that, you probably said to yourself, well, I understood that. You may not have verbalized it. You may not have uh, uh, had that epiphany when, when you first looked at it. But deep within every single one of you, when you looked at this painting, your minds interpreted it. And the message was clear to you. If you want to see, if you want to stop wandering around in darkness, you have to come to Christ. The old hymnist wrote, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. But what can I see? Next slide, please. Here's a modern interpretation of the nativity. What would it look like if Jesus came back today? Where would he choose to come into the world? We've all huddled in a bus stop at least once in our life. We've tried to escape the rain or the cold or the wind. When we gather at a bus stop, we're willing to come close to complete strangers, aren't we? We ignore the odors, albeit different odors than perhaps Mary and Joseph sensed in that uh, stable, but odors nonetheless, an unfamiliarity with people. We're willing to come together with complete strangers to escape the brutality of the elements. But who is it that brings us together? Jesus Christ. It is he who leads us to ignore our own distinctions and remind us that we are all human, that we are all without hope unless we have Christ. He reminds us that his love is for the rich and the poor, the homeless and the monarch in his palace or her palace, that in the presence of Christ, we are all beggars dependent on the grace and mercy of a sovereign God who calls us time and time and time again to come to him. Now for a moment, in these final moments, forget all of the art. Would you take it off, please? Forget the hype. Forget the tree. Forget the gifts, the carols. And just for this moment, focus on Christ's birth. Brothers and sisters, this is the real meaning of Christmas. It is one of the most beautiful and moving holidays. Incidentally, the word holiday really is an old English compound word for holy day. I always find it interesting when people don't want to say Christmas anymore. They want to say holiday. Bring it on. <laughs> it is probably one of the greatest holy days we can experience. 
because in its story is the purest and most overwhelming example of divine love, of God's love, that the God of all creation loved humanity so much that he came and clothed himself with flesh. It is the story of the gospel, brothers and sisters. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. And at its heart, it is the extraordinary notion that God himself should enter into into the human world as a helpless infant, utterly dependent on Mary and Joseph. What kind of God does that? It continues through an earthly ministry with love at its core. And it culminates, brothers and sisters, it culminates in the deliberate self-sacrifice of humiliation and agony as Jesus is nailed to the cross. But it ends, as the Bible tells us, with the glory of his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. Now, I don't know about you, but I cannot make sense of Christmas without the crucifixion and the resurrection. It isn't just the story of the birth or just the story of his crucifixion and resurrection, but it's the big story of Jesus Christ that is the gospel. Now, Christmas is probably the most tender and gentle part of that story. Maybe that's why so many people like it. But it isn't the full story. In Christ, we are introduced to the Christian worldview where honor is in humility. Strength is found in weakness. And victory comes from what seems to the world to be apparent defeat. And this has changed the world permanently. This is the gospel. God found a way to reconcile the impossible tension between his holiness and his love. Now, here's the thing. What I'm about to say isn't always enjoyed by folks. But God's holiness requires that human cruelty, selfishness, greed, and rebellion, by the way, we give these things the shorthanded word sin, that all of these things cannot be overlooked. If we overlook them, then God's justice would be meaningless. However, God's love requires that rebellious humans, me and you, that we must be redeemed. We must be reconciled. We must be restored to himself. And even though a lot of folks struggle with that notion that they're somehow accountable to God, they find the gospel story utterly ridiculous. But for me, the triumph of mercy You remember what mercy is? Mercy is that we don't receive what we deserve. That mercy is triumphant over judgment. That grace, you know what grace means? Grace is that you receive what you don't deserve. That grace is triumphant over the feeble attempts of our works to make ourselves holy. We can't do it. And suddenly, 
the overwhelming realization of what's going on here. That the perfect justice of God and the perfect love of God come together and begin on this holy night of the nativity. And this, this, this sacrifice, this abiding love, this is what the church proclaims. It's the moral beauty of Jesus Christ. Well, and all for that manufactured commercial sentimentality, for all the cynicism that the holidays engenders, perhaps in some of you, Christmas still means something special, even to those who celebrate it entirely as a secular holiday. For all of us, this story bears a message of generosity, of sacrifice, of thinking of others, of community, of love. This story can still lift us for a, for a time to a better place, to a better us. Merry Christmas. Merciful God, gracious God, thank you for your willingness, for your love, and for the cost of that love to yourself, that your justice demanded a sacrifice. But knowing that we could not give that sacrifice, you gave us your own on our behalf. And in those moments, when you clothe yourself with flesh, you came and dwelt with us. You, the one true God of the universe, became a man so that men and women could become sons and daughters of you. May that joy, may that first chapter of this great story of redemption take root in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.